Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I am Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Beijung of York University. Sarah, I, I have been looking at these topics that are ahead of us and thinking, the, this is the most heterogeneous assortment of topics. There's no way to segue these together, but uh, I issue to you the challenge of finding good segues um, to link these topics together. Do you accept? I do accept. Thank you. Excellent. Uh, And we are joined by our fellow co-host, Harvey Young of Boston University. Harvey, if you can, uh, why don't I issue you the challenge of of trying to prevent or debunk the segues and the connections among the topics? So does that make sense? Like Sarah will try to link the topics together and you will, uh, I don't know, try to prevent that? Sure, I can do that. <laughs> Gosh. You, you... The, the, this podcast is brought to you by the theatrical maxim, drama is conflict. Yeah. <laughs> We're, we actually, listeners, we've actually been talking about the podcast and thinking we need more conflict and antagonism in it. Um, so I'm looking for utterly artificial ways to create disagreement and debate amongst us. Um, and I don't think the segue one is a great one, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, on the podcast today, we have some excellent, though heterogeneous topics. We are very excited to be joined by uh, Soraya Nadia McDonald. She is the culture critic at The Undefeated and winner of the Nathan Award for Dramatic Criticism for 2019-2020. She's going to join us in our first segment to talk about cultural criticism, including theater criticism, though that segment is going to be recorded at another time with just Harvey and myself and Soraya Nadia McDonald in the huddle, and then uh, it'll be edited together later. Um, uh, After that topic, we're going to discuss Stephen Scott Bottoms' article in the new theater journal entitled The Rise and Fall of Modern Water from Staging Abstraction to Performing Place. This is uh, uh, one of the articles in the new edition of TJ dedicated to the theme of water. And finally, we watched the Netflix series Abstract. This is a sort of documentary show on Netflix about design, and we watched the episode featuring the work of rock star stage designer Ez Devlin. So we will talk about that. We've got a few news items to talk to you about. Harry Elam, a theater scholar and longtime vice provost at Stanford, will become the president of Occidental College. Um, That's big news in the field. We, We all know Harry Elam um, and his work, and um, he's moving on from Stanford, which is which is exciting and interesting. So, congratulations to him. Congratulations also to Elizabeth Sun of Northwestern University. She has won the Association for Asian American Studies Outstanding Book Award in Humanities and Cultural Studies. And in other book news, um, I noticed that uh, this was a tweet that Soika Colbert put out. So she and Doug Jones and Shane Vogel, who I believe are the co-organizers of this year's Aster on the topic of performance after repetition, have a book coming out from Duke University uh, called Race and Performance After Repetition. So that's exciting. That's going to be published in September of this year. And I just wanted to say hats off to them for coordinating their organizing of an aster with the publication of a very exciting anthology. That is some next level research coordination and effort. I don't know how they managed to do that. So now 
podcast time machine. Um, listeners, you're about to go forward in time and hear a brief conversation that Harvey and I will have with Soraya McDonald. And then we will come back and Sarah will be back on the podcast to talk about our second two segments. Sarah, would you do us the favor and give us a sort of sound effect to set up the time transition? Oh, yes. Well, here we go, everyone. Hello. And we are now here with our uh, very esteemed guest, Soraya Nadia McDonald is the culture critic at The Undefeated, where she writes about pop culture, fashion, the arts, and literature. She is the most recent winner of the Nathan Award for Dramatic Criticism, a prize awarded by the heads of the English departments of Cornell, Princeton, and Yale universities. And on tap, podcast listeners have likely seen her essays about theater, uh, the recent revival of Oklahoma, um, her piece about slave play and white noise, um, the Broadway production of King Kong. Um, you may have also heard her on NPR, where she has been a guest on the Pop Culture Happy Hour and Fresh Air. So Soraya Nadia McDonald, welcome to On Tap. We're so glad to have you. Thank you so much for having me. And so on this segment, it's myself, it's Harvey Young, who I believe you, you know of, of Boston University. And we wanted to have you on because you are a drama critic, but also a cultural critic. You write uh, for an online publication. You cover so much. Um, uh, and we love that you write so much about theater. But of course, we're, we're academic specialists in theater. And, you know, within our field, when you talk to other theater and performance professors, you often hear a kind of lament about the, the marginal place of theater within the culture, uh, the dominance of film and television. So we were curious, how do you see theater um, fitting into the broader landscape of the arts or of pop culture? Does it have a unique function in the culture? Do you feel like you're writing for specific audiences when you write about theater? How does it fit together for you? Uh, well, I think it's really important as <laughs> um, part of uh, pop culture and the arts. Um, in fact, I would argue that theater is probably where the two of those sort of meet. Uh, most organically. Um, I mean, especially if you think about the shows that are being produced on Broadway now, if you think about, um, or have been, whether it's Tootsie or Waitress or uh, Mrs. Doubtfire, you know, you've got a bunch of, <laughs> you've got a bunch of shows now that basically started as films. Um, so I would say, like, when I'm writing about theater, I'm basically trying to write in such a way that even folks who don't live in New York and who are never necessarily going to see the show um, will still want to read about it. <laughs> you know, we'll still be able to take something away from it. Um, so that is my sort of, that's my approach. Um, I think that's probably different from, say, someone who is a full-time theater critic who is mainly reviewing for a New York audience that is looking for, you know, some guidance on should I go see this show or not, or is this interesting or not? Right, right. It was. It, I was thinking about this. You know, today is the day when Ben Brantley's review of the new revival of West Side Story has has right. appeared in the New York Times, and that's a case where. 
you know, the New York Times has this function for its audiences, pointing them towards things that are worth seeing or interesting and and evaluating the big prestige projects um, and saying, was this worth it? Is this worth the hype? When I read your pieces about theater, I see you doing something else where you're weaving it into uh, culture more generally. I was I was looking at your um, essay about Oklahoma, and it's this little moment, but you linked in it to the video of Old Town Road, right? right? So, so oh. that, you, you know, there's this, to me, that's so different from what a typical reviewer is doing, because you're, you seem to be engaging on the level of a kind of omnivorous cultural consumer. Yeah, I mean, I, I am. <laughs> um, um, and I think, you know, it's, I think it's helpful for the reader um, because that's how most people, a lot of people consume culture, especially, um, you know, online, which is where all of my readers are because we don't have a a print publication, Um, right? Where, you know, there's there's a discourse uh, for better or worse. Um, And, you know, we're usually not just talking about one thing, we're talking about a bunch of things. Um, and so, you know, for me, it, it's, it's looking for these sort of points of, of intersection, um, you know, where I can say, hey, if you're interested in this thing, um, then, you know, you're probably going to be interested in something else, too. Um, you know, I think I ended up doing that quite a bit with Watchmen. I actually ended up talking about Oklahoma a lot <laughs> um, while I was uh, <laughs> reviewing and recapping Watchmen, um, yeah. in part because, you know, like, I think several of the writers on that show actually, like, come from theater backgrounds. They're, you know, they are also playwrights in addition to being screenwriters. Um, but also that influence shows up in the show um, you know, and I think the beginning episodes, there's a reference to black Oklahoma, like there's this all black production of Oklahoma that's being staged in Tulsa. Um, you know, they're, they're definitely, oh gosh, um, I want to say there was another uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein musical that they ended up sort of reference, I think it was South Pacific, actually. Um, and so actually one of the things that I've heard uh, and I yeah it is, it's a pleasant surprise um, is that people are like oh I'm so glad you can sort of underscore these theater references that these folks are making that maybe they don't understand that hopefully like makes watching and sort of thinking about and consuming the show that much richer so right, I have a question for you uh, and, and it relates to the uh, conversations you often hear among uh, sort of theater scholars, you know, who you know desire to have a larger reach in terms of an audience, uh, and and they wonder, you know, why is it that their work isn't connecting uh, with um, a larger readership? Uh, what advice or suggestions might you have in terms of how to actually write for um, a larger public? Like, you know, like, like, like where have you seen perhaps in looking at other people's writings, they've kind of fallen short in terms of hooking in the interest or the, or the desire for people to uh, keep on reading? Yeah, I think usually with academic writing, um, the thing that usually trips me up, like if I'm doing research, um, is just there tends, I feel like there's more jargon. Like there's a very specific sort of like academic voice that I think can turn folks off because, you know, 
because they feel like they they need a dictionary for every other word. <laughs> right. Um, and so, I would say, um, you know, if we're talking about like that specific type of writing, um, sort of clear, plain language, almost conversational. And and do you, and do you have what is your process in, in terms of your writing? Do you think in terms of you know like the hook must be you know at a certain point within an article or an essay? Um, so my I would say my approach like pretty much to everything, um, especially because I'm covering film and TV and all these other different things as well, is always so I have to be picky because I can't write about everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the first question is just, is this interesting? <laughs> like, is this something that people are going to want to discuss? Is it, you know, if it's all just sort of surface, um, there's not really much point unless it's unless it's a surfacey thing that, you know, that tons of people are expected to see. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so that's usually what I'm looking for is, like, is there some sort of deeper conversation that can be had around this thing. So that's how I end up writing about, like, doing the sort of massive essay on a big blockbuster movie like Bad Boys for Life. Yes, um, which is a great essay. I love that essay. Thank you. <laughs> which maybe isn't really expected, because, you know, it's like, okay, it's it's the third movie in this, you know, sort of, like, buddy cop franchise. Um, but, yeah, so I'm always looking for, okay, what can I, what can we sort of pick out from this and um, and say, hey, this is like this is worth talking about. This is worth knowing about. Um, and the other thing is that, and that also comes back to like writing for folks just outside of New York. Um, right. Again, you know. So usually, like, I'm maybe I'll write about like two plays in a film that are that have like similar themes or you know trying to answer some of the same questions and are going about it in different ways um yeah so basically like people have an idea of like what are the things that we're trying to sort out and what knots are we trying to untie and uh and basically just sort of laying out how theater fits into that do you especially because now i mean there are so many playwrights who are also now writing on television shows that's true um that's true. and it's you know i think it's the more you can become acquainted with someone's work um and understand sort of like their process the better did you get into writing about theater because you before you became an uh, uh culture critic had a fondness for it um did you did you have any you know so much so many of us who end up teaching about theater and performance in academia we started as sort of you know theater dorks in high school and then stuck close to it and managed to find a way to make a career out of it do you write about so much theater because uh you have a, a background near it or is it you're in new york and and that's what there is to see and talk about that's where the conversation is um it's both. <laughs> I, um, yeah, my mom put me in theater camp, like, I want to say starting when I was, what, probably like six every summer, um, or most summers. Um, and, you know, that was, that was one of the things where, 
um, even, you know, like just community theater productions, um, you got to stay up late. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, or you know, so they would, you know, they would take me to things, um, and then I was, let's see, yeah, when I was like in elementary school, like there were some like summer productions that I did. Um, I did a couple of productions when I was in high school. I was in Mama, I Want to Sing, and I was in The Wiz. Um, so no, actually, I I really loved it. Um, and then like when I was in high school, like my junior and senior year of high school, I decided that I was going to be a sports wow. writer <laughs> because I also really love football. Nice. <laughs> um, and I guess I kind of like abandoned it for a while. Uh, and then once, um, I moved to New York, I want to say like two years into working for the Undefeated. Before that, I was in Washington. Um, you know, it was like, well, I'm right here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> not. Yeah. I would say the other thing is that um, I think it was the 2016 season. Uh, I actually did come up from D.C. and like see a bunch of shows basically in like a week. Um but it was, you know, you had like all of these black people on Broadway, right? Like the Color Purple revival was running. There was still Hamilton. I still had most of its original cast, I think. Mm -hmm. um, Shuffle Along. Um, there was, oh gosh, Denai Guerrero's uh, play that was running that starred Lupita Nyong'o. Um, and so it was, you know, we write about race and culture and primarily about black people and race and culture. So it was like, well, this this feels pretty obvious. Um, well, I think you have abundantly demonstrated your, your theater uh, uh, dork bonafides. Several summers of theater camp in elementary school is definitely going to let it seep into your bones. And then when you live in New York later, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to go to the public and, and yes, see what this absolutely. new Susan Laurie Parks play is about. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> I, I think Harvey and I were also wondering about your conversations with your editors and the, you know, you're writing about theater. We love it. But as you say, many of your readers are not going to be able to get to New York to see the a production, a performance of White Noise. So you're writing for an audience that might be limited. Do your editors come back and say to you sometimes, like, you know, maybe more about what's on HBO right now and not so much about um, what's what's playing downtown? They actually haven't. Um, surprisingly enough, after we sort of sat down at the end of the year last year, they were like, you seem to be really good at writing about theater. Why don't you do more of that? That's great. That's wonderful. <laughs> it's so hard uh, to hear right? because I think, you know, Harvey has talked on a on a, another version of the podcast about uh, the the kind of future of dramatic criticism in terms of book publishing, you know, the 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 shrinking number of uh, shelf inches dedicated to writing about theater in Barnes and Noble, or the need for the drama bookstore to be rescued by Lin Manuel Miranda. It's it's not, not to paint some sort of super rosy picture, but it's really heartening to see um, a writer and a critic of your stature with your audience able to say, you know, people want to people want to read about. Um, what's going on in on, in New York in um, in theater. So it's really heartening to see that. Well, thank you. And, and I particularly love how 
Uh, your readers are sort of pulled across media. Yes. <laughs> uh, so, you know, a, a person will read about Bad Boys 3, uh, and then they'll also read about Slave pe- a slave Play, and they'll read about um, um, right. yeah. or whatever else, right? You know, and it's just one of those things that I think is wonderful because it's actually introducing different forms of art uh, to audiences and your readers, but also acknowledging the fact that people don't silo themselves, right? They are interested in music and theater and film. And right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? So it's like it all goes together. Speaking of which, I'm actually, I'm so glad. I'm going to see um, Zora Howard's play Stew tonight um, at Walker Space. Uh, and she, like, made her, like, performance debut um, in this feature film that she's in that came out today called Premature, which I think is just gorgeous. Um, and I think, like, part of the reason why that film feels so rich and connects so well on an emotional level um, is because of Zora's background in playwriting. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, You know, in the way that you have to develop characters and motivation and, you know, all of these things, um, I think are really natural for her. Not to say that they aren't natural for film screenwriters, because I don't I don't mean to insult them. Um, but I think there's there's something about the specific form of theater and the way that you're establishing those things that can have um, really positive influences on other types of writing. Um, I think that's also why you see, you know, Zola was such a hit at Sundance, which was like co-written by Jeremy O'Harris. Um, and also, again, with Watchmen, like when you see these works that have like right. really, really strong writing that's undergirding everything else, you know, whether it's the direction, the acting, everything else. You know, if you don't if you don't have a good script, you're you're sunk. that's true there's this um dynamic where i guess it's a dynamic where to to get on staff at a big television show one of the avenues you can go down is to get a play produced on broadway i've always imagined that that's because you know before they give you the money to film a car chase they want to make sure that you have the writing chops to to tell a good story and bring an audience in without all of that pyrotechnics. But um, it, one would it, per- hope. Perhaps there's also something about the the form itself and and the collaborative um, nature of theater that that allows people to get seasoned and, and get experience and then take these collaborations elsewhere. Is there anything else on your calendar? Things that are coming up uh, this year that you're excited to see and, and possibly write about. Uh, yes, actually. So let's see. Um, I haven't actually seen West Side Story yet, uh, but that is definitely on my calendar. Of well, course. apparently you don't. Apparently you don't need to. And <laughs> oh, oh, well. <laughs> well, no. I think actually, if I was in New York, I would be one hundred percent seeing that uh, to to form my own opinion. But yeah, yeah. Um, I'm also really excited about Six. In addition to all of my other sort of nerdy interests, uh, I really like for a long time was kind of an Elizabeth the first fangirl. Um, and so, so I'm really excited to, to, uh, to just experience this show and, and think about the other wives. Um, what else is coming up? Oh, Katori Hall's, uh, the hot wing King. 
um, which is coming to signature. Dominique Mariso's Confederates, which is also going to be at signature. That's terrific. Well, Soraya and Nadia McDonald, we can't thank you enough for making the time to, to be on the podcast with us. And we look forward to reading all of your uh, writing coming up about uh, exciting theater going on in New York and elsewhere. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. <laughs> oh, man, that was a great conversation with Soraya Nadia McDonald. Um, Sarah, welcome back. Um, uh, we're excited now to talk about Stephen Scott Bottoms' article in the new TJ. This is entitled The Rise and Fall of Modern Water from Staging Abstraction to Performing Place. Um, we were excited to talk about this. I think it's uh, a really exciting and original study. Um, I'm going to try to do us the service of, of giving it a bit of a synopsis. So this is basically a, a kind of dramatic, critical, and performance-critical uh, intervention into the topic of water. And it uses several different um, case studies to make an argument about the kind of modern paradigm in water. So uh, Scott Bottoms talks about the way that water is a pressing issue for the 21st century. We are, of course, looking at an epoch of climate change, rising sea levels, um, possible uh, you know, privatization and compromise of water supplies, which are necessary for all life on Earth, uh, human life included. Um, and so he looks looks at three different types of performances. One is the Ibsen play um, Enemy of the People, which has to do with a poisoned water supply and a, and a spa and a public reaction to a whistleblower who points it out. Um, he then brings us forward to the end of the 20th century, actually the very beginning of the 21st century, with the musical Urinetown, um, a very different sort of dramatic text, but one that also uh, gives an instance of the kind of um, modernist or, or modern way of thinking about water as an abstraction. And then segues from that into a pair of performances that he organized um, along with David Calder in Leeds at the Leeds Waterfront Festival that tries to break through this modern paradigm or modern, I think this is bar language borrowed from Bruno Latour, a sort of modern constitution of water, which according to um, uh, Latour's definition, is a kind of opposition between water as a natural resource and, and the natural world and water within the social world and a sort of social resource. So the notion here is that the modern way of thinking about water is to abstract it, to convert it into a quantity, a, a uniform thing, a molecule that is everywhere and always the same, something that can be and needs to be piped into our houses and, and brought into the public for our use, and that we, in the modern era, think of water that way due to ideological constructions. But in fact, uh, water in the social and the natural world is completely intertwined, right? So it's a, it's a kind of pathological, um, ideological problem that we experience water in our social life as abstract and a matter of abundance or scarcity and purity. Um, and in the natural world, um, it exists in something, as something quite different. And in order to 
weather and survive the ecological challenges of the 21st century, Latour would say, we need to recognize the interdependence of the natural and the social world and recognize human beings as natural creatures as well as social creatures. Um, so I thought this was really exciting. Uh, I'm curious to know, Harvey and Sarah, what you thought. I'll, I'll say this, which is that going into it, I, I felt a little bit of skepticism in the sense that this seemed to be uh, one of those scholarly projects where you take a topic that's not necessarily integral to theater and performance studies and then find case studies from uh, theater and performance to sort of draw it out. But by the end of it, I was extremely convinced that you know, Enemy of the People and You're in Town do do similar sorts of things um, in terms of the way we are inclined to think about water, um, even though they're very different texts. And uh, and also the proposition that performance as an activity um, can be used to change the way that human beings interact with this extremely important uh, substance in our lives. So what did you guys think? Well, I, you know, so, so two things. One is um, uh, I found the, the engagement of Latour with the two theater texts to be really um, one of the more invigorating uh, and interesting applications of, of Latour's work, particularly in, in We Have Never Been Modern, but also his more uh, contemporary focus on environment and ecological issues. Um, again, a, a kind of cross-species. He did this, um, this uh, kind of para-gathering or parallel gathering um, uh, around uh, the Paris Accords, if I remember, um, which which was like a kind of parallel UN negotiation, except that um, non-human entities were equally represented. So um, water had a had a constituents, had a representative as part of the UN Council um, and, and discussions, um, uh, deserts, uh, Plants, right? There was a whole bunch of kind of, and I thought I thought that was super interesting, um, and I really I really liked how how Steve kind of took this up. Um, I was also re- reminded when looking at the photographs of him in the performance um, of, and really impressed by the way in which he brings together his own performative engagement and, and um, performative in the sense of, of performance based or probably theatrical engagement with this. Um, with these ideas to be really pleasurable. I, I mean, I think I think thinking about the ideas is great, but also I was I, I was really impressed by and and enjoyed the way in which he talks about the project that seeks to correct what he sees as the misunderstandings or the misapplications of the of the earlier works. Um, and I felt rather corrected because I, I myself have often thought of Enemy of the People as a kind of, you know, pro-water, <laughs> anti, you know, kind of an, an, an environmental text. And I'm, I found myself being quite convinced by his argument. Um, but the, the, the real thing that, bring, bring, uh, that sort of brought it home uh, for me actually comes at the very end. And it's, it's talking about the role of theater and performance in the face of environmental and, and climate crisis. And I think, you know, I don't know if how many of our listeners have been engaged in these kinds of uh, arguments or debates where, you know, you're sitting with someone from the biology department or environmental studies and, and, and there's a kind of argument like, well, you know, basically like we need to stop talking about frivolous things now, right? We need to start focusing on the important things that, that the crisis is really here. And so we need to, to confront, confront this. 
and I think it's it can be very easy for people, certainly in the you know marketplace of ideas and public rhetoric, to think of many of the arts as being unimportant, except insofar they help amplify the message of the real work, and to think of the arts theater and performance included as really valuable when they serve a utilitarian mission. And so I really appreciated the way um, that Scott Bottoms comes around at the very end where he starts talking about not just uh, environmental, in the sense of environmental staging or sort of site-specific work, but also conventional stages is having a, a really important role to play that is not just about amplifying another message or reflecting or convincing or making a different kind of argument about the value of, of you know, climate science, um, but also in this place of helping us imagine some alternatives and think that through and that that can have a direct, uh, meaningful and immediate material impact as well as contribute to a different way of thinking in and through these works and, and through these ideas. And I found, I found the range of you know all three of those things that he does in the essay to be to be quite engaging. What do you think, Harvey? What did I think? Well, I'm still trying to decide where I where, where I'm landing on this. Uh, I mean, what I love about Stephen Scott Bottoms' work is that he often makes some really important interventions within the field of theater and performance studies. So, for example, my uh, sort of first introduction to his scholarship was when he uh, offered a um, study, a survey essentially of responses in TDR um, in an article called The Efficacy of Feminacy Braid, Unpicking the Performance Studies Theater Studies Dichotomy. Uh, and that was just, it came out in 2003, it was published in Theater Topics. It's a wonderful piece that uh, offered a way of thinking about uh, masculinity and also uh, certain sort of expectations around uh, authorship and authority and um, you know, really sort of called to task a scholarship that I think can sometimes be um, masculinist, misogynist, sometimes just outright lazy as well. Uh, so I thought it was wonderful. I thought that was great. Uh, and so I approached this article, you know, with a real fondness for the work of uh, Stephen Scott Bottoms. And, you know, in this case, in this article, right, The Rise and Fall of Modern Water, I'm still trying to figure out what motivated the writing of the article uh, be beyond the call for a special issue. It, 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 it felt like a, you know, a piece that was written because someone said, hey, write something about water, as opposed to there being a real sense of urgency uh, attached to it. And so, for example, if I were to imagine you know, the intervention a person might make around performance and water, um, you know, rather than going enemy of the people or, or you're in town, maybe you might look at you know, sort of performances and water rights issues, you know, in Africa and other places like that where, um, or, or, or protests around fracking, you know, and water. And it, and it seems to me that there is a real sort of urgency that could be uh, addressed that could bring in theater performance studies as opposed to uh, looking at Enemy of the People and, and, and the texts that are cited. Um, I will, you know, give credit to the fact that um, the Involvement of his own uh, performance practice, I thought was helpful. You know, I I love the work of David Calder. David is, you know, in my opinion, one of the great thinkers around festival culture and especially around uh, within European cities as well. Uh, so it was great to see uh, that being introduced. But I would have rather actually encountered sort of two separate articles. You know, one mm -hmm. being you know sort of Stephen Scott Bottoms writing about 
uh, his own performance work with David Calder uh, and maybe that appearing within Theater Journal, Theater Topics, wherever else. And then another piece that sort of took a more, I don't know, rigorous, more interventionist uh, approach at looking at the topic of water and performance. Interesting. Really? Yeah. So they, because they, I, I kind of like that these two things wove together, particularly because they went in and out of the, the theater space proper, right? But um, I mean, I, t- I totally take your point, Harvey, in terms of looking at other kinds of, um, uh, particularly in indigenous communities, right? In defense right. of water rights and uh, water access and um, water purity, right? I mean, so in the, the it's not just about the access to certain water, but also the the dilution and pollution and also diversion of water away from right um, certain communities. Um, but I, I I don't know. I mean, I, th- I thought that there was something really valuable in in thinking about the kind of conventional theater space next to the perf- you know the more what we might think of as a as site specific performance. So that. And again, this kind of came back to what I saw as as useful, although I, I totally take your point, in that I, I worry that sometimes if he had just focused on the second half of the essay, right, his own work, that it falls too quickly into a kind of agitprop yes. um, uh, aesthetic binary, right? And, and that, you know, we have you know, performance that matters because it's engaged with an issue and it's usually, it's often site specific. It often has a kind of documentary focus. And then we have like these kinds of conceptual aesthetic projects like You're in Town, right? Which are kind of cute and silly, but don't, are not seen as making the same kind of impact. And I guess for me, and I think, I think you're probably right. I think there are better ways to do it, but I really appreciated his effort at least to put both of those things in front of us simultaneously. So, so that it didn't fall into you know, like the work that matters and the work that doesn't matter. Yeah, I, I I can see both of these points. I think Harvey, I was with you in in the, in the point of the article where we transition from um, enemy of the people into you're in town. There was a part where I felt like the transition or the the connection between those two pieces of work was a little bit tenuous. There, um, Scott Bottoms argues that there's a kind of inversion where for enemy of the people, you take this sort of natural resource and it's um, uh, and there's a kind of public and private uh, binary where it sort of brings a public issue into a private space, whereas with urine town, there's this sort of I, what you think of as being a kind of private sphere activity um, going to the bathroom, but it's really the venue of this is a kind of public political showdown. Um, and I there was a moment where I was like, are these things really congruous in that way? But I think I was I felt ultimately convinced that the reason why these case studies fit and serve the argument of the paper is that they're showing you from, you know, I don't know, different time periods and, and are, you know, admittedly different places within a Western world construct, how theater or or drama is doing the work of ideology. Hmm. Indeed, this is the way we think about water. It's this abstract quantity that that we are supplied and it's pure or it's impure and that is the the way that we function within it or, or in, engage with it mentally in our social space. Um, and then the second half of the article, the one about the, um, you know, sort of more performance art uh, uh, or more activist oriented interventions, I bought that that's 
he and Calder are sort of experimenting with ways to change up that way of thinking. So that he tracks the way that audiences or participants in this in the second version of their um, festival performance actually started to think and ask questions in a really engaged way differently. So their performance becomes a way to um, possibly frustrate this. But I, I see what you mean, Harvey. In other words, you know, you could have different case studies. You could have protests about water. You could have plays. I don't know. I, um, Metamorphosis, the Mary Zimmerman play, where there's a lot of water on stage. I wondered about that type of um, experience. Um, uh, actually, the aesthetic and phenomenological encounter with water, how that um, would fit in. But now I'm trying to make peace, right? I'm trying to stop there from being a debate. I'm like, no, 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 no guys. We we all agree. It's fine. No, we totally disagree. We totally do, and I'm I'm sure Harvey's right. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, stop fighting! Stop fighting! Seriously, I I do think that uh, let's acknowledge you put this put put this in a a larger context here that it's part of a special issue on water in which other Mm -hmm. essays are addressing the topic of water. Uh, That being said, uh, you know, for me, I feel as though there's an opportunity, you know, or it's certainly a missed opportunity when if you're looking at sort of the political. You know, issues and tensions around water, water rights, water use. If you're if your concern is around the environmental elements and qualities, uh, that when you uh, so select case studies, you know that you know you, like you know do not center, do not spotlight um, those areas where water is really, really a life and death issue, where it really is um, you know creating uh, you know terribly uh, consequential experiences upon people's livelihoods, you know, you know, indexed by like race and class um, and, and sort of national um, setting where they live, you know, that it's a missed opportunity for me. Uh, and, and that's my, mm-hmm. my critique. And I mean, I, I do have great, it's a critique for the article. It's not a critique of the author, um, you know, but I just do, do feel as though it, it, it struck me as if someone were to ask me, you know, to write a piece on, on you know, topic A, and I was mm-hmm. short on time. I might look at my bookshelf and say, you know, what books do I have, <laughs> you know, that are somewhat related to topic A, uh, and it sort of had that gesture of of immediacy and availability as opposed to uh, deepness and depth and intervention. Sure. Well, and these are scholar artists who are based in Leeds, England, and and good for them for for working locally. But uh, Flint, Michigan, would have been another site where you could end up this discussion, and perhaps there's a performance piece or some sort of performative um, uh, behavior that could lift this out. But yes. that would seem to be another immediate yeah, right. crisis or concern. And of course, I will acknowledge that you know we're, we're looking at an author who's based uh, in the UK, yeah. So. You know, I've certainly written many things around race and performance, and have been hit, uh, you know, quite aggressively by scholars being like, "Well, it's very sort of U.S. provincial, like, like, like race and conversations around race circulate outside the U.S. in the context of, sure. you know, different countries, different cities." Uh, so I acknowledge the fact that my desire for a different geographical setting, um, you know, you know, may not be the first thing on someone's mind who lives in a different place. Well, I mean, I would be. I think this may also be a question of um, the composition of the of the of the issue itself, right? Like, I mean, one particular article might hold a certain kind of space, but um, you know, but how the special issue kind of lays out and where this might surface in other kinds of places. I mean, I think it's 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 really important that 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 also be a big part 
uh, of it. And I, I don't have the table of contents in front of me, so I don't know if, if one of you does. I don't either, but Paul Ray has a piece in there on Ar- archipelagos, um, you know, look, engaging in Southeast Asia and, and other, you know, other parts of the world where water has a different quality. Yeah, I mean, my, 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 my recollection is actually that the, that the issue does, does a, a pretty good job of, of targeting this, this issue from, from different directions. Um, and so I think, I don't know, the, the, I, I think your criticism is really valid within the context of this one essay, um, particularly because for those of us who encounter these as digital files circulating as opposed to reading our, you know, bound printed, uh, you know, copy, I mean, I think that's also maybe one of the questions about, about formatting and engagement. Listeners should uh, should check out the the special issue and and the article. Um, but why don't we move on to the um, as Devlin episode of the Netflix series Abstract? I don't know, Sarah. Can you can you think of a good segue? Um, I can think of one. Um, well, I believe that there is one of the sets that they talk about um, in in as Devlin's and the show escapes me um, is one in which it, which specifically engages water. Um, yes, indeed. So, and, and so there you go. That wasn't even too difficult. Um, yeah, from wa- yeah, from water as uh, dramaturgical lowdstone to water as per- uh, uh, performance effect. Yes, that, um, I think that works. And, and she said, and she says that if you put light on water, uh, it creates a sense of depth. Fantastic. Though Harvey, you were supposed to try to block this segue. So. I'm just agreeing. <laughs> <laughs> I can't block too many more times. <laughs> so this is a. a, a Series a documentary series on on Netflix called Abstract: The Art of Design. Um, the episode on Es Devlin is, uh, to my knowledge, and I, I haven't watched the subsequent seasons, the only one to talk about theatrical and performance design. Um, but it's 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 pretty great because it kind of looks at at Devlin's career from doing very small scale UK uh, productions to. Um, you know, Beyonce's formation tour and beyond. Um, it looks at her process and has her talk about kind of her history and engagement with with space and objects and, and light in particular. I, I believe she's got five principles that she lays out for how she mm-hmm. approaches certain uh, design questions or problems or challenges. Um, and then she kind of takes you through these different examples and, and culminates in a kind of wonderful I- I engagement that I won't completely spoil for you with a paper toy theater, which is kind of quintessentially <laughs> British and, um, and kind of lovely. So, um, you know, I first encountered Devlin's work um, when I saw The Nether at Royal Court Theater, the Jennifer Haley play. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I will will readily admit that when Devlin talks about how that play fools the audience, um, I was absolutely fooled. Right? I did. I thought I was looking at digital effects um, in the Nether, in part because it's a, about a kind of surreal uh, digital uh, virtual world. Um, when in fact I was not. I was looking at symmetrically placed trees in front of mirrors, and um, and the kind of clever way in which which that plays into. And so it, it, I found that revelation utterly delightful, right? Having, having again been fooled by the theatrical experience and then having this revealed. And she's just a really engaging, um, super interesting person to, to listen to talk. And I will say, having watched many, if not all of the, the abstract episodes, that is not always true. 
um, having designers talk about their own work, e no matter how much you respect the work itself, is not always a, a super engaging, uh, delightful way to spend um, the 45 minute episode. And and Devlin's was, was really the exception to this. Um, I, I found it really engaging. And in fact, I've used it to teach certain principles of design and to engage, especially introductory students, to the possibilities of, of thinking about theatrical design, not as a realization of something, but as a, as a process and as, as a mode of thinking. And I think it, it works really well in that capacity. What'd you guys think? I had the same exact reaction in watching it, which was that sometimes artists are not great at talking about their work. You see the work and you're just blown away and you want to hear this person talk. And then you realize that maybe um, verbalization and embodied communication is not their specialty. But as Devlin is uh, eerily um, good at, at explaining what she's doing, making it simple, making it compelling, the, the, the rhetoric and the explanation sort of matches the quality of the spectacle that she generates. So I thought it was a lot of fun. Um, one, one moment that sort of got my attention was when she was, I think this was in the midst of her talking about the Kanye West, uh, Jay-Z, Watch the Throne tour, which she, one of many big concert spectacles that she designed. Um, and she explains that uh, sort of concert footage and photography at, at the end of the 20th century, first decade, there's a kind of genre uh, uh, formula to it. It's close up from below high color photographs of the artist's body and there's light behind them. And that's the kind of image. And um, she's doing something utterly different. And the way she explains it is that it's both in terms of how the artists are seeing themselves, right? So if you're Led Zeppelin or you're David Bowie or, or um, uh, whoever else from that era, you're looking at photographs of your own performances, but contemporary artists, Beyonce, um, uh, et, et cetera, are seeing images of their own shows through social media. So you realize by the end of this discourse that as Devlin is saying, I'm designing for Instagram, like I'm designing for a square because not only that's how the audience is taking it, but she's focused on the way the artist sees themselves, right? So the artist is on Instagram looking at images of their own performance. And she's saying, this is, you know, I work with a lot of squares because squares are the shape um, that we see these images through, which I thought was fantastic. No, I, I completely agree. Or rather, yes, I totally agree. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that there's something extraordinarily validating about uh, this particular episode with as Dublin uh, in which you're just uh, impressed delighted amazed uh, really reinvigorated uh, by the centering of an artist a theater artist who has such an influence a person who can work you know, in a small theater with 78 78 seats like the Bush theater uh, or a person who can design for 80,000 people whether it's a Beyonce or Jay-Z concert uh, and a person who can also create art installations uh, for like a national like biennial or triennial uh, exhibition and I think that that is something that is ex super exciting and I mean unfortunately I think that within graphic design people are sort of poaching upon this area so the phrase of interactive design I think is beginning to circulate more and more you know to, to cover this this level of of designing across performance forms without using the word scenic or set design, which is, I think, unfortunate. But she very clearly identifies herself as a theater maker, a person who 
uh, was inspired by toy theater, uh, by those paper theater boxes. Uh, so it was just super exciting. And then for me, I just wanted to, to single out, uh, she's super quotable. I mean, she's amazingly quotable uh, where you, you just want to sort of sit somewhere in her orbit and just absorb you know, all of her insights. So you know, the first thing she says about her discovery about theater, uh, she says that when she walked into, I guess, the theater community or she met theater makers for the first time, uh, she said, and I quote, you know, these people are kind of feral. They stay up all night. You know? and, and, and she knew that you know, that's where, where she found a sense of home for herself. So I just thought this was just absolutely amazing and extraordinary. And I highly recommend uh, that everyone uh, check out Abstract. And if I can just make a quick teaching recommendation that I've used a number of times and found really helpful is, and it kind of goes to what, what panel was saying about Instagram and, and certainly builds on the number of quotes, uh, very quotable things, is to show this episode um, uh, of Abstract with, with Devlin's work and then show YouTube clips of Beyonce's formation tour because you will see, so that's you know, that Devlin is designed, like the central feature of this is this enormous rotating cube that is an LED cube that breaks apart, um, that Beyonce is herself projected into. But the, but the YouTube clips in particular are great because they are always a clip from close to the stage that includes in the foreground many other people's phones recording the same event. And there's one... I, I can't even remember when, when I grabbed it, in which as Beyonce moves through the crowd out on the kind of you know runway that projects out into the audience, the phone that we're following follows her until it realizes that the show of the actual Beyonce is now the back and you can't really see well. And then the phone gently pivots back to the stage and <laughs> continues to film the giant video cube, right? And so it's it's also a wonderful way of talking through what are the key dynamics of the quote-unquote live performance today? And in what role does social media play? Do mobile technologies play? Where is the real performance? And also, where is the real design? And for whom and what audience is any given performance aimed? And so it's, it's, the students really love it. Um, it allows you to open up a number of different kind of topics and interests. Um, it's very accessible, and it's a great way, if you teach early in the morning, as I sometimes do, of waking up folks with a bunch of Beyonce. <laughs> it's excellent, excellent pro teaching tip from Sarah Bay Jung. Uh, guys, we've, we've come to near the end of the podcast, and we have time yet for our drafts. These are our uh, musings, thoughts in progress, um, projects, or, I don't know, remembrances, imp impressions. Um, Harvey, would you like to start us off with your draft? Yes, uh, and my draft simply relates to um, an interview that I'm, I'm going to do actually later today, which will be in the past of this podcast when one listens to it, and that's an interview I'm uh, having with uh, Dream Hampton. And Dream Hampton is the executive producer of Surviving R. Kelly, along with some other uh, docu series. And for me, it's it's looking at I've been thinking about uh, how do we understand this moment of sort of a, a, an embrace, a hyper appreciation of docu series as opposed to just documentaries. Uh, the the idea of watching an hour long. Uh, uh, episode over six weeks, you know, that allows for a certain level of you know, sort of deep exploration and, and investigation into a topic, you know, with also you know, the rise of the, um, the the phrase fake news, 
right? And, mm. and how there's this hyper-criticism, uh, this reluctance to believe anything that's coming your way through media. So, so that's my sort of tension. That's my draft I have. I'm trying to figure out, you know, how do we, how do we coexist within a world in which people, you know, want sustained investigations, but also distrust uh, the airing, the, the, you know, the presentation of that result of those investigations? It's a great question. Uh, Sarah, what is your draft this week? Um, so my draft is is really less of a statement or even a, it's really more of a, I'm going to ask for help. So um, in, in thinking about and in reading through, um, you know, looking at the, the current challenges around precarious labor, especially in the arts, and thinking about um, the role of an arts an art school, uh, you know, and so by this, certainly including theater and performing and performing arts, but but any of the other kinds of departments that I uh, collaborate with up here at York, um, you know, and looking at the the increasingly you know dire data coming out. So, for example, I, there was just the the publication from American Historical Association about the number of PhDs being generated versus, um, you know, number of jobs that are coming on the on the market. Um, I would really be curious to hear from our listeners um, because I think I think we talk at them a lot, and I think we circulate information, and there are lots of kind of parallel conversations happening on social media and elsewhere. But I'd be really curious to hear um, if people wanted to write in or comment or you know, ping us on social media, whatever. Um, you know, what would people want to see as a kind of, uh, you know, future, future direction? Um, and maybe this is kind of like pie in the sky ideals. You know, I mean, I think, you know, more jobs, more investment. I'm totally there. Um, but what are the what are the intermediary steps or what are the the ideas between, you know, here in Utopia? And um, and so it's really more of a query, and I, I'd love to hear from from folks about what they're thinking about. I know that there are very often comments that circulate around about how, uh, good things that happen to people on the job market, as well as you know really negative and and you know bad ways of of handling that process. And I'm I'm sort of curious to hear what are what are folks' recommendations from wherever they sit within the larger kind of ecosystem of theater and performance academia. So questions about how um, universities or departments or arts agencies might um, help uh, job applicants or, or young people navigate a, a bad job market, things that institutions like the ones we're parts of can do? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we have the whole Alt-Ac conversation, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's been really robust, and I really admire the folks who've invested in that. Um, uh, I'm, I'm aware that, you know, in this area, we seem to have the same kind of problem or the same kind of challenge that we have in fields like acting, right? Where like the supply of labor because of the desirability of the job itself um, consistently outpaces the actual job opportunities. And so how does one navigate that? Um, and, and really then again, what is the role of, a, a, of, an, of an institutionalized art school in confronting and, uh, and responding to this? Um, and I think we, we tend to, you know, and again, we kind of speculate this, it kind of circulates, but I'm just, I, I'm curious if there are n- new ideas, new thoughts, or new perspectives on, on how people are thinking about this outside my own kind of immediate circles. 
Great. Thank you. Um, so listeners, you can um, leave a comment on our Facebook page. Um, you can email the the hosts. That's hosts at ontappod.com. Uh, tweet at us, DM us on Twitter. I'll make sure that those messages get to get to Sarah. For my draft uh, on this episode, I just wanted to acknowledge the, the passing of Don Wilmeth. Um, Don Wilmeth was emeritus professor at Brown University. He was there for, I think, 30-plus years. Um, the editor and author of dozens, something like four dozen different books on American theater and American theater history, mentor to many graduate students and scholars in the field. Um, I think it's right to credit him with helping establish the scholarly field of early American theater history, the the notion that theater history began before the 20th century in um, North America, um, and also popular entertainment. Much of the work that he edited and published was on not uh, the quote-unquote legitimate theater or, or drama at all, but on uh, popular entertainment, circus, um, uh, other things like that, which I think opened up the path for a lot of really important scholarship. Um, when I was a young graduate student at Brown University, Don was was there. Um, and I remember that in my interactions with him, he really gave me a sense of, of confidence and that I could do this and that um, he that gave me a leg up psychologically that really helped me throughout my career. And I know that I wasn't the only one that he was um, kind to and supportive of. So I just wanted to um, remember Don. Uh, rest in peace. So listeners, the next edition of the podcast will be recorded live in Providence, Rhode Island at Circe, and we hope to see some of you there. Sarah Harvey, and though she's not on the call right now, Soraya McDonald, uh, thank you very much, and uh, we'll have some more audio for you very soon. On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com. Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for On Tap, and on Twitter at ontappodcast.